वेलकम टू सिंट टॉक दिनटॉकर्स अराउंड द टेबल टुडे डिस्कस द ऑर्गेनिज्म आर्टिफैक्ट हाइब्रिड्स विल थिंक अबाउट द स्पेस एंड द एंटिटीज वेयर द नेचुरल एंड द सिंथेटिक कोएग्जिस्ट एंड इंटरैक्ट व्हाट एनिमेट्स द वर्ल्ड कैन लाइफ बी फॉरएवर इन सस्पेंडेड एनिमेशन what is the equivalent of water for human machine interactions when and how do these interactions alter consciousness is the active passive binary of organism artifact wrong do robots need ergonomic designing do artifacts learn and embody do interactions create more life what will organisms of the future be like and are we all already cyborgs or on the way to becoming one we are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today dr onirban dash he is from ctsc he trained to be a doctor and later branched out into humanities through philosophy He is intensely interested in the literary. Dr. Vivek Kant, he is from IIT Kanpur. He focuses on socio-technical systems, human factors and complex systems and human-machine interactions. And Dr. Sunil Lakshman, he is from Instem Bangalore. He is currently interested in metabolic networks. sensing and signaling in living systems and extreme biology so uh onirban why don't we set the ball rolling with you because in some ways almost literally speaking you've kind of inhabit two worlds and you have a sense for as if a lack of a better word what body is uh in in a somewhat physical sense but also its conceptualization and so on and so forth and when you think of uh these dichotomies or these so called pairs or binaries like living non living or natural synthetic or um organism artifact as we calling it today uh do you see them as as two very different species are they two different categories do they lie on a continuum are they on a spectrum like how do you visualize them and uh, it would just be good to get like your take on it and where where the cutting edge thinking is on this and then we'll see how we can bring sunil and avivek into these questions see when one uh, tries to think in terms of uh, say this division between organism and the artifact the first point is that we generally tend to think in terms of the separation in in very commonsensical ways and yet uh definitely from the last uh quite a few decades uh in the humanities social sciences but probably in the practices of the sciences it has been there from much earlier like this separation is not so very tenable as uh, it seems to be in a common sense manner and 
I would say like uh, just uh, from philosophy, if one tends to think, like uh, from those Spinoza-Descartes uh, sort of division, uh, Spinoza would tend to think in terms of a, a body-mind continuum. Very monism is, kind of view. Yes, uh, from a monist kind of philosophy. And Descartes would tend to think in terms of a, a binary between the body and the mind. And but more than that, is there such a thing as non-living? Uh, I think it's really a little bit less of body and mind and a little bit more of um, body and man-made or body and or living or non-living or thing versus organism. Um, mm-hmm. Yes. See, for a, like, uh, this is again a very, very old kind of thinking. But like for a Cartesian, I think the problem would be whether you have or have not consciousness. and the question of having or not having consciousness uh, like can be raised only when one thinks in terms of a very clear separation between the conscious and the inanimate world so the body there is squarely in the domain of the non-conscious but that's that cartesian separation which practically, uh, I think definitely that uh, neither in the practice of the sciences nor in most of the like philosophical kind of thinking that is there, uh, at least till the 20th century, uh, that has been uh, maintained uh, like so much separately. And, and definitely, uh, one can say in terms of a, what one nowadays would say a post-condition in the humanities and social sciences in philosophy, the post-modernism, post-structuralism, all these kinds of things, where uh, one tends to think in terms of a coming out of the modern kind of thinking, a moving away from the modern kind of thinking, where uh, modernity seems to be, seems to consist in a binary kind of thinking and all these other later kinds of thought, the consist in coming out of that. But definitely, like, all this has been talked about for decades now. And uh, the very interesting other question, which, uh, like, Latour somewhere, like, uh, in, in uh, We Have Never Been Modern, I think, uh, brought in was the division between the pure and the hybrid. Right. So, if one thinks in terms of a division between the pure and the hybrid, then Latour reminded us that one still retains the distinction between the pure and the hybrid. So if you are on the side of the hybrid against the pure, you then are also maintaining the binary between the pure and the hybrid. What is what is pure for Latour? No, no not for Latour. Latour would say in the that dominant mode pure. of thinking, uh, pure would be to think of, say, the inanimate, the non-living on the one side, nature and culture. That would be the primary kind of uh, thought. And when you did medicine, you know, when, uh, when the medicine people think of the body, is that conception somewhat akin to that of a machine? Or is it just animated machine? What, what, what is the body from, let's say, from the, from the science lens? Hmm. Uh, again, uh, medicine, when the practice of medicine is trying to uh, intervene 
in processes of the body, uh, we know that in all interventions, uh, at some point we have to take a decision with some presuppositions. And within those presuppositions, one of the dominant presupposition would be the presupposition of the body as a machine. As, as being at least somewhat mechanistic. Somewhat mechanistic. But definitely because as if it were I not, then you wouldn't be able to intervene or send a drug to do something or the other. Uh, something, yes, yes. So intervention would need almost a binary kind of thinking. But, but, but uh, what I would always want to like point at is like in the practices of medicine, again, at the level of the laboratory, at the level of research, one really doesn't maintain this kind of uh, mechanistic kind of thinking about the body. One uh, always moves into like uh, other ways of thinking. One always has to think of how, say, like the observer and the observed, they, they make each other up in, in certain ways. To keep that in mind, and definitely in medicine, uh, that, is, that is very clear in practice. Uh, may, I, may, I, may I move into a little uh, sure. more? Uh, see, like I, I, I worked in the uh, intensive care units for uh, a few years. So there, we had to take decisions uh, in the moment. We had to uh, like decide on uh, what's the diagnosis, uh, what medications, in what doses. They, they, that is very crucial. And so we had to have certain systematizations for that, certain tables, that if this shows up, then you give this. You had to have a model for the... Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the model. But we always knew that these models had been made up through the means of statistics, through the means of what really happens through a number of cases uh, that has been studied. So there's always this chance of a non-response of the kind which the model says. You mean, you mean what if the patient was non-model-like? What if the patient was aberrational? You mean it in that sense? So, like, you, yeah, like yeah. Going, science, going to the question uh, of normal, like what is normal? Yeah. So science always has to uh, differentiate between, say, uh, deviations from the normal and aberrations from the normal. Right. The abnormal and the deviations which are uh, which one can allow. Normal and the pathological. Normal. Yeah, 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 definitely. Again, here also, the line between the deviations and the abnormal, the normal deviations and the abnormal, that line is also very contingent. Very contingent on like those observations, uh, those uh, kind of... Contingent? As far as precision on that line goes, or its very position or region? I mean, you could say that normal blood pressure is so-and-so, but it certainly doesn't mean the normal blood pressure could be 3x of, mm. of that numeral. No, so, mm. you know what I mean? Like, it's one thing to be exact or inexact about it. Mm. And it's one thing to be, like, totally wrong in the very conception of it. Uh, I presume you mean the former. Uh, see again here. I'm obviously simplifying yeah. it. No, 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 no. You were uh, like right on to the point because for a normal practice of medicine, mm -hmm. one has to have those definitions. One has to work 
uh, according to those limits. But if one like keeps in mind the history of sciences altogether, at the back of the mind one has to keep the possibility that this whole paradigm might change someday. Right. Uh, that that has to haunt the doctor at some level. Right. <laughs> uh, of course, like if it continues to haunt, if it like uh, lets you then not you let, take decisions, then you leave medicine you behind and you do a PhD uh, in something. <laughs> <laughs> That's there. What's That's your there. conception, Sunil? Like for you, like you obviously go inside the body and you look at many different organisms and not just the human and so on. Um, now on this question of how mechanistic is life, and of course the bigger question is what is life and you know maybe one should think about this some other day. Um, how mechanistic is it and where do you lie on that, on the spectrum question? That's interesting. So I don't know where I lie on the spectrum question, but um, from a very um, simple scientific definition, a unit of life is a cell, right? And what is a cell? It's a contained entity. At its simplest form, it's a contained entity. It has the ability to carry out a series of chemical reactions for its energetics. And it has the ability to replicate faithfully its information. So code the information, replicate it, all in a contained system. So now if you satisfy all these criteria, you're living uh, at the simplest level. Is, now, is, are things inside a cell living? So, so that's where, and this is actually the beginnings of the modern scientific method in some ways. Because essentially what, um, the beginnings of what you'd call biochemistry, essentially what people found was you could break open a cell, you'll have proteins and you'll have other things in them. Now they could still carry out functions, catalytic function, let's say, very well. But they're not living in themselves because they don't satisfy the other criteria. They can't replicate themselves on their own or they can't generate uh, energy continuously, breaking down something into something else in a continuous cycle. And they're not contained, they're now broken open. So essentially you have to satisfy the all of the above, all three, to, to say you are living. But now lots of these pieces inside, these are like the Lego blocks, they're still there. So it's like, you know, all the parts of a car, a wheel isn't a car, a steering wheel isn't a car, an engine isn't a car. You put it all together, it's a car, right? So we, we would think of life in its simplest form in this way. You have all these little blocks. They all fit certain types of designs, like they would fall into certain types of form and function. You have to assemble them all together to have a complete living entity. And just say an Autobot or a robot or something wouldn't be living because it can't satisfy one of these criteria. So it can't, for example, replicate itself or something like that. So that's how I would think of life in its simplest definition, without any philosophy in it. And is there any hazy zone? Are all, every little or large uh, living unit you think of? Yeah. this? Are there like a crazy number of exceptions? There, um, there aren't any crazy number of exceptions, but always the debate in science is are viruses living or non-living? Because they're right at the edge. The virus cannot replicate itself. It needs a host. A host is usually a cell inside a, any other organism. It could even be a bacteria. But once it's inside, it can faithfully replicate itself. It can carry out a whole bunch of functions and all. So it's right at that edge of what is living or non-living. So presumably it came about by assembling many units that are almost there. 
then once you could put it inside a system that could complete that one missing element, then it's living. So the virus itself is right at that edge of living and non-living. That's how you would look at it as a scientist. A robot is not living. It's still a robot. What is living, non-living for you, Vivek? Because you think of, uh, let's say, you deal with humans a lot more than maybe other life forms, but uh, uh, do you think of the human as you design your various systems and contexts, uh, or you think how to intervene in them or improve efficiency, etc.? Mm-hmm. Do you have a very machinistic conception, mechanistic conception? What's Where do you lie? So, uh, I'd say that uh, design and it's it's very much a human-oriented term. And that uh, leads us to uh, more uh, different or it kind of skews our thinking towards certain uh, ways of thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, certain ways of thinking, what it means is basically uh, things such as when we think about this uh, living, non-living continuum, right? So, uh, from a human viewpoint, you would say that, uh, let's say, uh, there is, uh, uh, so humans are not designed per se, they are natural entities. You mean they have evolved? The, in a, yes, evolved and evolved like living entities have uh, have evolved, like biological entities, uh, evolution of biological entities. Then uh, people have started creating these uh, newer, um, what do you call, technological systems, AI, uh, robotics, uh, those kinds of technological systems. And they have... Uh, uh, so the language of uh, biology is being brought into this realm of things which are created uh, by human beings, but now they have so-called uh, a sense of life or their of their own artificial how, how, life how or something do, like how that. How do machines interact with each other? Does it necessarily need a language? Because there's this whole other area of let's say affordances. Now I don't know whether affordances are there between non-living mm-hmm. things yeah uh, but somehow an environment does present these these aspects things yes. To, to, yes. To, to the situation yes so the coming back to your question and pricking these up so i'll uh, so to spell out a few things one i, I would like to kind of say that uh, the human and the, the or more broadly the organism right there is no organism uh, on its own organisms are there in ecosystems right organisms are in ecosystems habitats niches habitats niches conditions conditions and there's not just one organism there are multiple organisms so my body has a lot of bacteria in it right and that's life in itself right and uh, but me as an individual i don't think of them as bacteria i think of them as myself as an individual so I would uh, like to bring in certain... The but notion when you think of, of human-machine interactions, mm-hmm. you don't have to think of the bacteria. Not right? at all. Yeah. Not at all. But I do. I may not have to think about the bacteria, but I have to think about the body in a mechanistic sense also at times. Because when I'm sitting on this chair, right? If the chair height is not enough properly, if my feet are not touching the ground, right? My uh, There will be fatigue in my legs, right? So, when I'm thinking about the body, I'm not thinking just about the body in one way, but I'm thinking about the body in different ways. So, from a very uh, integrated systems point of view, what I would say is that 
I could adopt levels of observations. Uh, at one level of observation is that, you know, you can treat an entity like a physical entity. So my body is a physical entity, uh, a biological entity, so to speak. Uh, and then I could also say that, um, uh, you know, uh, then you can treat or adopt another level of observation saying that uh, there is something that is designed. So uh, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't call that uh, uh, natural entities are designed in the same sense we design objects. But uh, you can look at something and say that, okay, uh, there is my digestive system and it does something, right? And there are certain parts to it which kind of gives me some kind of an output. So I can think of the body in, uh, in, in process way, terms. In process terms, right? Then I could also think of my body as uh, not just the body, but uh, me having an agency, thinking of myself as an intentional system, right? An intentional agent, so to speak. So the same entity, I'm looking at it from different levels of observations, different But in all of these conceptions, the whole body is one unit. There's no... There are no... Uh, yes, there's a body and the body is in an environment. So the unit is basically for, at least for HMI design, a unit is... The whole body. The whole body in its immediate environment uh, being affected by, um, what do you call, outer uh, forces, so to speak. So for example, for me, when I'm designing something, uh, so let's say I'm designing an interface for your in-car entertainment system or even for driving, right? So for me, it's not only the body that I'm designing for, I'm designing for you as an individual. And the body is a very important dimension of the entire design process. So rather than saying that I start with the body, I say that body is very important, but there are other things also that are important. So that's, that's how I would try to think about it. What this does for me, and uh, okay, some points have been picked up by... Uh, Dr. Dash before and uh, this notion of he talked a little bit about Spinoza versus uh, Cartesian dualism versus uh, uh, monoism from Spinoza actually the way we think about at least uh, the way I've been thinking about things and this comes a little bit from uh, ecological psychology and you've talked about affordances so uh, James J. Gibson was an American um, uh, psychologist and he started with this uh, and people before him also have uh, brought out, especially in uh, the whole uh, uh, American pragmatist approach towards thinking about uh, uh, behavior is that the behavior is an emergent of the person in, in the environment, in the environment, in the context. It's not just the person. Right. Would you agree? I, I just wanted to say it's, it, this is very interesting. I haven't thought about this at this level at all. But what's very interesting and what we know is that you reduce it down to the simplest life forms, like single cells, right? Their reactions, their behaviors are entirely dependent on, or very closely coupled to the environment. And they're very, very different with every slight change in the environment. So it's there's the no such thing as only entity. There's always an entity right. in an environment. So, so essentially, it is the entity and the environment together. You cannot treat anyone in isolation. And second, you don't have to invoke something like consciousness or active thinking because inherently even the laws of thermodynamics will push things different ways just by changing the environment. I think the question is that that does that work at some subcellular level, something happening inside the mitochondria and so yeah. on or does it happen at the level of Sunil talking to Onirban? Yeah. Right? So it's That's all the... of the above is how I would say it. You can actually break it 
in a very reductionist way you can break it down into smaller and smaller and smaller units and it holds to a large extent like there are scaling factors that come in but you see little intracellular processes that kind of assemble and form a larger process for but the But there tissue. would be is there some kind of exponential dampening or something going on like whatever is happening inside the mitochondria is almost entirely biophysics or something yeah at the moment it comes to you picking up that cup yeah. and sipping a cup of tea yeah. by that time they've done what they've done but they're yeah, far yeah. from so the question for the philosopher will be okay all this biophysics is happening and it is happening undoubtedly yeah, yeah. and it forms and assembles and it scales and then where does that jump yeah, where happen does where does its influence, influence end in or end yeah uh, only one you know the answer we're all very eager to know <laughs> <laughs> no answer you know yeah acha <laughs> uh i was just thinking like i'll, I'll go back to the issue uh that when one is thinking in terms of this binary say uh, the natural and the constructed or practically uh, the human acts as a third term third because term. one doesn't only differentiate from what is uh, natural and what is constructed but it also differentiates from what is constructed uh through volition through intention and what is constructed through say a machinic type of uh, for for the moment i'm i'm taking that division to be that uh human intention and uh intention created in machines are different I, i'm just taking it for granted for now uh but the notion of the human with this whole notion of intentionality it brings in something a third term almost into this uh, binary and if we go back to that whole debate around like uh, continuity and break continuity and separation there i think that again like uh the arguments for continuum has been there for uh, as um, i was saying like for a few decades now quite a number of decades now so now maybe the the focus is uh, shifting a little towards also thinking about the specificities so even if one thinks in terms of a continuum so what are the specificities of the different nodes in this continuum so if there is a continuum between the 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 nature and the machine just because they are in a continuum doesn't mean that a single point on it cannot be highly Absolutely. unique yeah so the uniquenesses of these different points are all biological entities hybrids like our cells do all cells have some virus something inside which is like this dubious distinction not sure living non living <laughs> uh, like are there are there pure i think he used the word pure he invoked latour a little while ago and you may or may not have thought of things in those terms but in the natural world to a to a biologist uh, are there are there pure living things pure non living things no no every is, living is everything thing super mixed up out there see a bunch of non living things essentially are what make a cell but it becomes living once it just you know closes itself and can replicate so essentially it is but, a bunch of non living things it is just all these processes coming together at one place at one time and then it's living 
So the distinction. But are there a bunch of uh, unicellular organisms out there which are just single cells with yeah. with no with no contamination inside of of well, the living sort of a smaller cell or so and so on. So the cell. It's a natural world question. Like in the natural messy world, are there? I mean, you clean, have pure single cells. You do. I mean, you do have. Okay, you can have viruses everywhere, but you can still have isolated cells without any virus. Sure, no problem. And then even with living systems, like you have bacteria and you have um, eukaryotes, which are including uh, mammals and everyone else. Now, right. all eukaryotes are actually cells within cells because what we call the mitochondria was originally a cell in itself. It was like a bacteria, right? And it fused with some other ancient cell and gave us a modern. eukaryotic cell which is the mitochondria it's a cell within the cell and it relies on everything from the cell to form the mitochondria in itself so it is a but coupled entity but the mitochondria entity. is living non living it it is about living it is almost living but it can't be living in itself because now it's so Again, coupled or tied host relationship yeah it's almost. it's it's even deeper than that because it now cannot exist In fact, beyond this, yeah, and and the mitochondria drives the cell, and the mitochondria has become so essential to the cell that it is uh, they can't be decoupled. But there is no cell, no mitochondria without the cell either. How long can these things go uh, into, let's say, some some form of hibernation, and how does that happen? Because there is there is this possibility, as you know better than all of us, of switching to a state which almost looks non-living. But is not, or at least has some key inside. Which, so what what's going on there? What are some interesting? Yeah. So this is actually a niche field of extreme biology, right? Uh, cryptobiosis is the word. Essentially, it means can you have life in a crypt? Cryptobiosis, and how far can you take a living entity, take it to almost to death, and can you revive it? And we're finding as we look deeper, more and more interesting things. So when cells uh, shift to a what you'd call a very deeply low metabolism state deep quiescence or something like that it essentially shuts down all its energetic processes and protects itself uh this is imaginarily like what you'd see in star trek when you send someone into cryo sleep like extremely low metabolism essentially undetectable and then at some point of time when the environment is right it'll come back alive and what does it happen only for like very small organisms yeah So what originally we thought only uh, bacteria and yeast like our baking yeast powder could do this but those are single cells so it doesn't matter if out of a thousand cells 990 die because 10 are alive and they come back but what we're finding now are uh, worms insects animals of course some plants which can do this and these are very complex they have tissues they have nervous systems and they can go into some kind of extreme deep uh protected state so where they last for years so these are and nervous years nervous systems with memory or well all insects have memory for example and there are these um, uh, beetles several forms of beetles in the saharan desert and so on who essentially go into a non metabolic state for 10 years 12 years 15 years and then the one time it rains over there they come back alive and breed so this is what we're finding now and this is amazing because this is essentially saying more complex animals which have a digestive system a nervous system a, 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 a circulatory system they can also do this and it's not just a bacteria or a yeast and so this is really an exciting time if you get into this to start asking what kind of processes happen there but a much more 
uh, apparent phenomenon that we observe are uh, animals like bears and squirrels, for example, that hibernate for three months, uh, four months in, in, in the cold. Uh, you couldn't hibernate for four months. You'd be dead if you didn't have your nutrition for a week. But a polar bear hibernates for three full months or uh, four full months where it goes into a low metabolic state. Of course, it's burning, but very, very, very slowly. Then it comes out when it gets a little warm again. So you have a continuous spectrum. You have torpor, you have hibernation, you have uh, deeper anhydrobiosis or something. And presumably you can go all the way to maybe protecting or preserving an entity for indefinite periods of time and then reviving it. So will we get there? I don't know. But there are enough clues that many organisms push the ability to do this. And mechanistically what's going on here, this is like just switching on some energy reserve at the end (laughs) and just keeping the battery alive (laughs) with the ability to fire it back up. And and in that case, can one genuinely do something cyborg-like and actually introduce a genuine machine, like yeah. in the layman term. Yeah, so that's the dream, right? That's the ultimate dream, like if you're a scientist, you, can you do that? But what we know is this core idea that three or four things have to happen. So like I said, the the scientist's definition of a living entity is this contained system which can replicate its information and have energetics. Which means now if you go to the other end of the spectrum, you have to still protect this contained system. You still have to keep everything intact that is required for replicating and duplicating information. But you can't have energy production and burning because that is a paradox. So what we are starting to observe in all these organisms that are doing this is that when some environmental triggers tell them that they have to go into some self-preservation mode, like you're losing water or something like that, the first thing they do is shift all their energetics away from making energy, so shutting things all down. But then they also produce molecules that will protect the entire system from breaking open. Because once it's broken open, it's no longer living. So you'll have oily, greasy uh, molecules that are being made that just stick around and then just preserve and protect. I mean, uh, the analogy that I have used to explain this to students is if you have a machine and you leave it out in the open, it'll rust, it'll corrode, it won't come back. But if you grease it very, very heavily, you might be able to revive it after a very long period of time without too much effort or input. And it almost looks like some living organisms are able to do this. So it's a form of prevention of deterioration. Um, uh, prevention of deterioration in a way that it that can, be can be revived revive. later. So, so you can't just preserve and protect in such a way. Like a mummy, an Egyptian mummy, is, is it's it's protected, but, it's but it can't, it's dead. So in these torpor or hibernation-like states, uh, from a technical perspective, does aging stop or slow down to uh, asymptotic kind of low? growth rate wise or whatever like when when these beetles come back after 10 years are they just they don't age so the most age. amazing story came out in um, in a scientific journal a few weeks ago and also came out in CNN and BBC where some um, russian researchers dug into the permafrost something like 80 feet and then they found some worms that were frozen there in the last ice age and then they put it out on a petri dish and the snow melted and the worms came alive so these are several thousand years old and they were frozen several thousand years ago and they are alive now. So a lot of people don't believe that those worms were that old but the fact is they were isolated from the permafrost several dozens of feet below. So what's going on here on Urban? Like how does one not think of at least this worm in the permafrost in Siberia in a non-mechanistic way because it seems to be 
like on this point that Vivek made a little while ago on this entity environment thing, it seems to be the case that uh, you bring the environment back and the entity leaves back into life, right? At least the way we think of it. Now, isn't this entirely mechanistic? Uh, I was thinking that this then tends to that continuum hypothesis more rather than the separation and the break. Uh, but my little modification to, to this thing would be that, uh, say, though the unicellular and the complex multicellular organisms, they can undergo these temporary cessation of like activities for some time, they do not do it in the same manner, isn't it? So the question of specificity, the question of the breaks appearing within the continuum, that remains in certain ways. So they do not do it in the same way. And also, uh, like again, if we bring in the question of the human, quote-unquote human, then the question of the resistors in which one can think of, say, the machine or life. See, the machine or life or like any, any entity, do we call it an entity only when it is like something out there ready to hand, ready to touch? a material entity or like the ideational domain, does it bring into something different into that entity? Like maybe it's a different way of asking the question of whether the domain of thought, though we know that thought uh, is produced through like reactions in the uh, chemical substances in the brain, the domain of thought and those changes, the separation between those registers, shouldn't one also think of that separation, even when one is thinking of the causation of those thoughts through those chemical changes? You, you, you mean there's something emergent uh, happening even though mechanistically you can reduce it to like these 97,000 reactions and you know the details of every single thing happening there but the even though you know all the processes and all the mechanics there could still be something emergent which is called a thought or a process of thinking is that your point see the the very obvious answer to this throughout philosophy was something like spirit or something like that right that which adds to the matter right but i'm not talking of that i'm talking of the interactions between matter producing something which is of a different order. Yeah. Whether one has to keep that in which mind. Which is of a different type. Yeah. Of a different kind, yeah. Of a different kind. Yes. Though they are being produced through interactions in matter. So it's not like that uh, something spirit from outside, but something produced through the interactions in matter, yet not reducible to the dynamic of matter fully. Entirely materially caused but still of another kind. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, this uh, kind of reminds me, uh, especially when uh, uh, the subject of psychology was breaking away from physiology. And uh, uh, what was happening is that uh, these, these debates were very essential during that time. So uh, 
when is it that uh, you have a certain understanding and the realm of psychology right uh, is it separate or can it be completely reduced to the realm of physiology which means if you figure out your biology completely have you figured out the psychology when also? will pharmacological interventions do and when do you yes, need to go and yes. see a shrink so right. <laughs> i mean uh, to put it more pragmatically <laughs> in everyday life yeah that's a nice way to put it right but uh, uh, also the deeper question is like uh, so life emerges right we but ultimately we know that there are uh, physical laws there are uh, biological laws over which chemical laws over which you still have these uh, understanding rules uh, negotiations of the social world right so all of it has to come together how they come together is the big question uh, without reducing one to the other uh, and uh, another challenge i think um, in this whole realm of uh, uh, the living versus non living is rather it's the uh, at at one end we have uh, material which we uh, or matter which we say is uh, either uh, what do you call non sentient unable to think but still changes constant changes going on in that and at the other end we recognize something as living something as uh, animate in our everyday world but uh, not everything has to be animate to be living uh, so that poses a big big challenge for us in terms of just saying that this is living versus non living right so a, a subject like psychology which deals with the mind right would ideally be supported by subjects such as uh, physics uh, subjects such as uh, chemistry subjects such as biology without them psychology cannot exist individually so coming back to your original question which we had started with was uh, the living and the non living right so then i brought in the thing about the human in or the organism in an environment so when we are thinking about behaviors we are thinking not only of the organism but we are thinking about this uh, mutuality between organism and environment let's think only of machines for a change so let's sure. say we were designing a robot yes. for a specific purpose yes. there were no human beings involved right. at least after the robot has been made sure now does does that operate with its own grammar in its own way uh, or or does it somehow end up mimicking the way humans behave or move or ideally we would want it to be an individual entity of its own but uh, in most case the idea of a robot then becomes so the idea of robot comes from the very famous play rur by uh, check um, uh, dramatist karl kapek i if i remember him correctly and the whole idea of robot was that there are these mechanical slaves who will do all the work for you so that uh, thinking about robots and um, see when they started making robots how do robots move around right so earlier they had these wheels with which you would move around so putting a wheel presupposes that you have some kind of a surface yeah on which you you can run the thing if you don't have that kind of a surface then you have a different kind of a robot which would be more legged kind of a robot right so i would say that even in our conception in design when we are thinking about entities per se we are in some way or the other making assumptions about the environments in which they will work so that's what makes it very interesting so it's like it comes in for free 
so the environment comes in for free even if you haven't uh, explicitly recognized it let's say we were not making real life robots and we could make a robot with its own environment let's say a robot to like just make microprocessors or to you know to absolutely to assemble cars or yeah. to make pizza yeah. or something yeah. and there were no human beings in yes. within 5 square miles of yes. it so if you could create the environment and the robot and the machine yeah does that a qualitatively different kind of space or does it again somehow end up mirroring or mimicking the living environments in some shape and form is there something about the nature of these processes and what about the goals of those processes <laughs> okay. about the intentions of <laughs> the processes that that Which, is yeah that is you a know what i mean question. because yeah, yeah. Uh, in a sense we're kind of presupposing that whatever can be robotized or mm-hmm. algorithmized and so mm-hmm. on the turing machine argument etc etc yeah. you yeah. just create a robot out of it and it works mm-hmm. but you know where i'm going is there yes, a way yes. of saying that all right when i look at this process i know that there's a living thing inside in there mm mm-hmm. yeah that's that's the key but so uh, i mean uh, to not to be too solipsistic about it i always fumble on the word thank you so uh, <laughs> what happens is that uh, aren't all categories that we uh, make uh we are making them from the viewpoint of very much a human viewpoint that's the whole question do yes. robots have their own categories yes uh, yes that even is, though we make that that that's a big big question i mean if there were so for example uh, uh forget robots come to machines uh, in general uh, yeah uh, machines in general but let's say if beavers who make dams right so do beavers make dams and design dams the same way that human beings think about design yes. so that's a huge challenge and the whole idea is um, what it is to be like a bat yeah. right so uh, nagel put this forward question right it's very difficult for us to move beyond a human categories to see beyond it i don't know if we'll be able to do it maybe some people are able to no, do it who are smart to people like onirban who will be able to comment <laughs> comment on this yeah so because that's the job of philosophers right it's supposed to help us figure out these questions that seem very abstruse at some point mm. and again again it's in a way a very roundabout way of asking the same question this it's a spectrum question again like is machine an intrinsically different thing uh in which case it's inner thoughts even though it's not accessible to us uh are of another kind um now the processes that go on in the process of a volcano erupting is obviously very different from the and so on and so on the different kinds of processes the question for you sunil therefore is that are processes involving living entities um whether hybrid or otherwise somehow different in their nature are living processes different from non living processes mechanistically i would almost say no because they are both physics at they are physics at work and chemistry at work right in fact even when you study living things like cells and tissues you break it down to internal what we call molecular machines proteins enzymes amino acids and so on and so a lot of that would function exactly the same because uh, the you know all the natural laws would be at work no but like we just touched upon this gibson yeah. notion of affordance now when i go to yeah. the door I look at that handle and I kind of know maybe people have trained me into doing it but I know that I can pull that handle I don't know whether my kid would know it before he's taught that 
but when this molecular machine turns up at the cell does it know that it has to enter yeah, exactly. via that place it does i mean <laughs> in, in, essentially it can only do what it can do yeah exactly and it does what it does very well yeah, so but that's, that's all it can do right so yeah. there's that's there's why no i say you don't so, yeah. yeah it has no versatility and so which is the question do artifacts learn do artifacts learn now does 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 this the artifacts evolve So no, artifacts it, don't evolve organisms evolve organisms evolve but artifacts just it, are designed or so it's so I'll just put this out there I mean I could be way sure, off sure, here sure sure but in inside a cell for example you have and this is something uh, related to what I work on which is how enzymes evolve you have an enzyme or a protein that can do task A with selection over some amount of time through series of selection you can make that start to do something else and you can make it you can design it to do you that you don't design it happens it's something happens and you observe right? it so over time it starts acquiring new function and then you if you keep that selection pressure on the new function will become its primary function and it might even lose its old function so here you are twisting or changing the environment to you change the environment to which puts the phase space of that yeah, entity yeah we changes the space of this entity itself and so the its composition then changes and its composition slowly 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 changes so the first iteration may not look but very different but your conception of it would still be configurational that it's trying a bunch of yes so it's sampling space right it's sampling, sampling a bunch of things and because of selection you're eliminating all the stuff that didn't work urban you have this hardcore reductionist here so this is that this that's what i'm <laughs> no. saying this is the most reductionist way you could think about it but of course it's then hard to jump from here to what you just described yeah yeah of course there's like so, so many so levels away so that's where the gap for the jump comes in but yeah some of this is possible but yeah i think what you just described it would be fair to call that a form of adaptation or evolution because presented with a new kind of environment do robots have to be ergonomically designed is there such a thing as ergonomy for robots yes, for machines yes so, yes like which is which is just another form of energetics like it should just take less time and no so money uh, and yeah ergonomics uh, ergonomics for robotics would mean again different things depending on the kind of robot you're using and designing your for your favorite kind <laughs> So I mean, uh, so let's say uh, we uh, took that example of a robot in an environment. Let's say it's a factory environment, and there are people involved with it. So ergonomics of the robot doesn't, I mean, doesn't fit in completely. But ergonomics being uh, the study of work, so uh, robots and uh, humans in uh, shared co-located spaces doing certain works. So that will be ergonomics, for, uh, ergonomic design for robotics over there. and then we are looking not not only at the size of the body size of the scale of the robot where it is placed those kinds of things but how it interacts uh, does it interact in terms of a, what do you call uh, another person or another entity intelligent entity or does it interact in terms of a tool so these kind of open up a much more broader question uh, which kind of connects to this living non living continuum but it shifts it slightly towards more in terms of uh, in uh, agency is it an agent versus it is is it a non agent that that becomes a question for us because the biggest challenge and uh, especially this, this this agency is also pre-wired pre-coded into it right like it doesn't it doesn't have its own agency <laughs> yes so the, like there's that, no no such thing as own there's yes, no such thing as self there. yes so that's the whole ai also question also we think or at least so i think exactly the that but that's the whole ai question 
that they want to program it in a manner that which displays uh, certain agencies or it becomes sentient and that i mean th- that leads us to altogether different uh, yeah, realm of what, questions what sonil is saying is correct and a lot of this biophysics at very granular levels is leading to the somewhat emergent thing then like how do we know that this robot won't end up <laughs> yeah. going the last step and what is the what is a machine for you i was thinking that uh, this uh, whole question of like say sameness and difference uh, continuity and uh, break this really depends on what you are trying to think from where you are trying to think so like if uh, one like tries to think of say what the organisms are made of what uh, like material things the organisms are made of even uh, the work that organisms do how that is being produced how that is being made up again then one thinks in terms of a continuity with the machine but does that reduce completely does that uh, obliterate completely the difference between the functioning of the machine and the functioning of the organism now See, if i were... is trying to think of the the material basis of the organism one is trying to think in terms of how it is like the machine or probably conversely trying to redeem a certain kind of spiritual basis of the human or something because to to preserve a little bit of that sanctity while trying to keep the special position of the human or something because I'm if different. because i would say to think of the specificity is not to not only to uh Call like speak to I, the I, spirituality agreed hmm. as i was telling that one can think of the specificity appearing due to the material dynamic now if i were to be a person who has had let's say i have many stents in my heart and all my knees are like of metal and more my bones are of metal and i'm as cyborgian <laughs> as i could yeah. be does it would it would it change and this is a scientific question uh, to you as the, the the medicine man or the science man i know that dichotomy itself is flawed uh, <laughs> Uh, does it change my human subjectivity like how i experience myself in this world and how i love or hate and how i love, like my ice cream and so on like does it see that changes my subjectivity but does it take away my subjectivity that hmm. would be the question right question i think that changes my subjectivity because when i know my heart has these properties uh, it, it has something into it so say when i go through the uh, scanner i have to be careful so <laughs> like in very quotidian terms it it changes my subjectivity but does it take away my subjectivity altogether no of course and not. the wider question would be when i am knowing the way something is made up something is constructed am i already somewhat dead <laughs> if 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 i have all these implants in me and you know i could still like my ice cream but am i already somewhat dead mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that that's in a way the question so of course that doesn't fully alter me i am still alive and a lot of the processes that 
constitute being a living organism that probably go on um uh, yeah where is all of this headed like where are we going to end up in 1000 years 2000 years <laughs> because clearly the creep is there right the creep is there mm-hmm. like we if nothing else then then for enhancing our age or improving the quality of our life like nobody none of us are going to refuse a stent if we get a heart attack this evening <laughs> and so on and so on so um, these trends are out there so where is this headed do you see this as heading in a direction where there are going to be different kinds of organisms in the future uh, again to maybe use sunil's thing you know one is just presented with a newer set of constraints a newer set of desires which is the opposite side of constraint uh, and if somehow evolve into something else uh, would there be other forms of species are there already different forms of species are there uh, is there is our mm-hmm. cellular life different from the time you started putting stents inside us and started <laughs> taking these drugs you know what i mean like where where are you on this no. um this is actually a, a, a probably an, too open ended for your liking it's open ended for my liking but it's i guess an increasingly uh, common theme in science fiction no and the best kind of science fiction speculative fiction has been the kind that has predicted the future so science Go fiction predict the future <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> no but it i think it comes back to the original question where do you draw the line uh, between and i think it's increasingly clear that that line is not that hard between what you'd call non living and living so you not can not that big a deal to me it's not I mean, of course if i'm dead it is uh, yeah <laughs> until i'm alive it's a big deal yeah. but objectively it may not be such a big deal as long as these definitions of life the ability to procreate replicate faithfully encode information those are met essentially you're meeting that bar of life then and so therefore why not then call something that is doing all of that okay, but is not cellular living thing. are there only two kinds living and non living or is because in a way that's the presupposition uh, that we we in the way we calling it a spectrum and so on but we still have two end points um could there be other kinds like in your Adventures. No, it's it's living or non-living, right? It's it's almost binary. As soon as you satisfy these conditions, you're living. But what makes that living thing could be all? It could be very different from how we imagine the living things today. Like honestly, there's nothing to stop artificial entity like a future, you know, robot cyborg thing to satisfy all these criteria. And in that case, then you'll have to consider it living. So Latour will have to let let the cyborgs and robots into the parliament. <laughs> yeah, but the along thing with the with other which things, I began like Latour, like also talked about a very interesting thing because he was telling that this division between hybrid and pure is itself a division that has to be questioned. Hmm. So one whether one can be pure and hybrid at the same moment. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's the point, and that's the point which, like, I'm trying to say when one is trying to think in continuum and yet the specificities. So pure and hybrid at the same moment, whether whether or not, like, that is probably the way we think in in our scientific endeavors, in our like endeavors in thinking. we always do that but we always think that we are separating them and that's the like very like amusing thing maybe 
what may happen in it the future. Be, yeah, it's a kind of illusion almost. Yeah. What may happen in the future is that whether uh, these things change or they don't change, but our social categories of the way we define things will definitely change. Mm. So, for example, now with uh, these um, uh, cases in biology coming up, really more advances in biology, really questioning the fundamentals of biology. So, uh, even, I mean, this whole notion of uh, dualisms that we see nowadays, mind, body, uh, the person, environment, all these dualisms are coming in because of uh, the way mechanism really crept into the understanding of science in uh, 1700s, 1600s, 1700s. And that valued certain kind of knowledge. And we are living with those categories with now. So, what we can expect definitely is that the categories will themselves be revised. So, specifically in uh, uh, the sociology of science, uh, they are asking questions like what it would be. So, uh, so for example, we took up uh, robotics, right? And we uh, talked a little bit about whether they are uh, this or that. So, an analogy if we take from them is, so for example, if you read Turing's original paper, which uh, many people have used it for the basis of the Turing test, what is very interesting in that paper and no one talks about that much is that there is one paragraph which he says that whether we don't know what will happen in the future, but we do know that things which we recognize uh, or there are certain things that will happen or they will change which we recognize as intelligent. So what he's also talking about is some way the way we categorize things. So the way we categorize things as living and non-living right as of now will have a shift. So we recognize certain categories of, you know, certain entities which we may be able to interact with later. And it would be okay if you talk to your toaster uh, in the future and the toaster replies to you. And so uh, now if you hear me talking to the toaster, you'll think me to be mad. Maybe in the future, you, that would be very normal. Yeah, so new grammar, new norms. Definitely, definitely. That, that at least we can at least say that the social categories may change. But uh, which would which is like another way of saying that we may end up socializing these the machines of today, yeah, and we end up interacting with them and having a social yeah. relationship. Now, many people have these, not many people, but at least a few that <laughs> one ends up reading about here and there have robot pets and all that, and yeah, yeah, they yeah. genuinely seem to have a relationship with yeah, them. Yeah, now maybe it's a case of just projecting, or could be, could be. Those are, and that's where it really is. We start to, uh, because there's all these categories of living and non-living and animacy and intelligence was very much a biological category to begin with. And then they started moving away from the biology and said that, okay, instead of flesh and bones, instead of cells, we will have all these uh, uh, material entities that will replicate that, depict that, show that. So, that is the thing. So maybe in the future, yeah, why not? And uh, with things, people do have implants and it does change their view of things. In fact, what you can also do is not just implants, but in everyday life. So for example, if you change the height of your shoe, right, and you walk around and do it for a number of days, maybe a month's time or something like that, right? And after that, it take, changes your subjectivity. It, it really changes your subjectivity. So there was a very interesting experiment uh, done by this um, uh, psychologist 
uh, what he had done was that he had put on a helmet and in the helmet he had prism uh, inverted prisms there right so after some time what happened is that uh, so earlier he had difficulty in walking around because the world for him was upside down right right and it was very difficult for him to walk around but over a period of time he adapted, he adapted to it so literally he was swimming <laughs> uh, cycling doing everything upside down upside down <laughs> and uh, his uh, name it's is it's like a nice way to do this without taking drugs yeah so <laughs> uh, the, the name of uh, the uh, scientist was hubert dolezal he's written a book about it living in a world transformed and he conducted several experiments so for example if you wear uh, so for example binocular based uh, kind of glasses so you have glasses towards the end and you're just wearing it the world when you take it off you literally see a difference and it's not just this so for example if you wear colored glasses all the time so this was a study done in i think 1930s or 40s by ivo koller an austrian um, uh, vision scientist uh, so what he did was that he was wearing these colored glasses and over a period of time people adapt to those colored glasses so they can see the color through the colored glasses and as they would see it earlier so they don't see the color of the glasses which is very interesting <laughs> because your perceptual categories are changing based on the way you are uh, adopting things so this all these categories of what we define as very concrete specific they, it is malleable in nature and they learned and they normed and, exactly. and we kind of ended up creating these categories exactly and this will shift and that's the i think that's one of the whole endeavor of science i believe is to question our basic fundamental assumptions so that we can look into that and try to create new things we'll end with you anirban uh, what's what's your prediction for something about the future in the context that we're dealing with today so like obviously there's no prediction <laughs> uh, but uh, i'll just add one point uh, one just point to him uh, that is uh, like see this problem uh, like uh, scientists are facing when they are trying to like find whether there is life in any other space any other planet or anything so there this question becomes paramount like what to call life whether only life in according to like the human parameters on this planet called earth whether that is the only parameter of life or not and obviously like there are science fictions uh, like have tackled this problem especially but life is not a category as uh, subjective as beauty or something right it's not that <laughs> sublime I and mean, there is some objectivity and you know i think sunil was describing like reproducibility and replicability in self contained and all of that so presumably when one turns up at mars or some other galaxy or whatever one would look for the traits now perhaps one encounters something which makes us redo the definition of life um but we can only look for what we know right like how does one look for what one doesn't know but to remember that objectivity works in a specific context right so and, in and a different right. context how does one uh, know that uh, would definitely change i would not say that might change but that would change that's a very valid point that how does one know that our definition of whether these definitions have relevance in another world yes. altogether 
because but again the opposite side is like that doesn't take away the validity of of, of the hard facts of the of, yeah. of the of the hard nosed facts yes yes absolutely thank you i think that's a good note to end this on thanks to all of you for making it and we look forward to having you soon again thank you for coming take care